Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you decided to join us. We study the Sabbath school lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this series is on the book of the beginning, and you, of course, would probably guess that that's Genesis. This is lesson number six in that series for May 7 of 2022, entitled The Roots of Abraham. I don't know how many of you have talked about the roots of Abraham in the past. That's an interesting comment. Well, as usual, we like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we have gathered here today to look at your word and to try to see a little more in depth what is represented by these significant passages of Scripture. Sort of the central part of the book of Genesis is focused on the life and activities of Abraham. And, of course, he started out with one name, Abram, and then he became Abraham and So many interactions between himself and you. Help us to understand what all that is supposed to mean is our prayer in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. This lesson covers the beginning of the story of Abram slash Abraham. The central story, except of course for the story of God, of the book of Genesis. And this lesson, and by the way, let's, let's just be clear. If we, even if we take the fairly limited explanation of the history world that it's no more than 6,000 years old, and very few people still think that. It, most people, even short earth people, think it's maybe eight or 10,000 years old. But let's say you go with the 6,000 year time. We're still saying half of the history of the world is covered by the book of Genesis. Half of the history of the world is covered by the book of Genesis. Wow. So this lesson covers the beginning. We already said that. In this lesson, we will follow the lead of Ellen White and others and use Abraham, except in quotations which have Abram. We do this even though there is significance to his name change. Jim? This section takes us on a journey from Babel to the promised land, but with a new hero, Abram, who leaves his home without knowing his destination. Abram's first steps toward the promised land are not easy and rather hesitant. Abraham struggles to inherit the land. When he finally arrives in Canaan, he cannot stay there because there is a famine. He therefore must move to Egypt, but Abram cannot settle there either because of a conflict with Pharaoh. And what was their conflict over? Over his sister. (laughs) Who's going to have the beautiful woman, right? Okay, go ahead. Abram is then obliged to turn back and go And so he goes up to Canaan again. But even there, things are complicated. Abram and his nephew Lot agree to part ways because of a land dispute. Afterward, a war breaks out that involves the whole country, the very place that God has established Abram. So, you know, here here is Abraham, or Abram, and God says, look east, look west. We're going to see this later. Look north, look south. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. Keeps him wandering around. And all of a sudden, there's a war. <laughs> Hold on. What's going on in my land here? Go ahead. After the battle, Abram is met by a stranger, Melchizedek, to whom he gives his tithe, a way of acknowledging that nothing belongs to him. These episodes are rich with spiritual lessons in which... Me, in which issues of faith and ethics are intertwined. Bible study guide. Page 80. Page 80. 
Abraham was challenged, one, to go away from his home at Ur of the Chaldees, and we've talked about this in this class before, but there's pretty good evidence, I think, that this Ur of the Chaldees, uh, and just, we know historically that the Chaldeans originally came from southeastern Turkey. Later they moved way down to the Persian Gulf, and then even after that moved back up and conquered Babylon, and they were, and they were the ancestors of Nebuchadnezzar and the light, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and they were, became the, they enforced their language on the Babylonians who had originally had a different language, and so they're moving around, but I'm, I'm quite sure that back in Abraham's day, they were way up at the northern end of the Mesopotamian Valley, and, um, that was where Ur of the Chaldees was located. And later, too, to go and sacrifice his son at Mount Moriah. In effect, he was being asked to leave his past and destroy his future. Hmm. Think about that. Thus, Abraham became a kind of migrant, always on the move and totally dependent on God. These are some of the central texts in the life of Abraham. Gary? Speaking from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your relatives and your father's home, and go to a land that I am going to show you. Okay, so it's not just leaving your country. Who else? Leave your relatives, leave your father's house. In other words, I'm cutting all ties, right? That's from our Bible study guide. I mean, that's from the Good News Bible from the American Bible Society. Yeah, okay. Genesis 22, 2. Take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac. That's his future. Whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. There on a mountain that I will show you, offer him as a sacrifice to me. And again, that's from the Good News Bible. Genesis 17, verse 8. In brackets, God said, I will give to you and your descendants this land in which you are now a foreigner. The whole land of Canaan will belong to your descendants forever, and I will be their God. From the Good News Bible again. Okay, so now he's been he's being told that this whole land is going to be yours. He's being told that several times. I come to think, he comes and talks with Mrs. Abram. You know, he went out of the tent in the evening and he comes in and he, he tells her these things. Mm-hmm. So that she's a oh, wonder what have you been drinking? You know, <laughs> 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 crazy thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, when those visitors came out and came down, we're going to talk about that, but, uh, and he, he, he runs out and he, he and his wife prepare something for them. I mean, he had 317 trained soldiers, and we read that there was more than a thousand people in his household. And he and his wife are the ones who prepared something for Jesus and the angels? The servants did it. You think so? Well, (laughs) no, this was special, though. But they knew that it was special because Sarah, I don't think she was so nosy, but this time she went by the door and she was listening to everything, and she... Well, of course, I mean, you know... They were special people. Yes. With a promised child yet to be born, Abraham needed to move forward by faith. He needed to trust God's promise. In the next three weeks of our study, we will focus on Abraham's movements, his trust in God, and the words from God, quote, 
do not be afraid. Hmm, what's he supposed to be, what's he going to be afraid of? We recognize that scriptures have cited Abraham as a great example of faith. As in Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8 from the Good News Bible. You, Lord God, chose Abram and led him out of Ur of Babylonia. You changed his name to Abraham. You found that he was faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him. So why did God call Abraham from his comfortable home in Ur to go out to an unknown land? Genesis 12, 1-9 The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, your father's home, and go to a land that I am going to show you. I will give you many descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will bless you and make your name famous, so that you will be a blessing. Oh, he wasn't going to make a name for himself. No. I will bless you, or I will bless those who bless you. But I will curse those who curse you. And through you I will bless all the nations. When Abram was 75 years old, he started out from Haran, as the Lord had told him to do, and Lot went with him. Abram took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the wealth and all the slaves they had acquired in Haran, and they started out for the land of Canaan. I'm going to interrupt there for a little bit. Later on, we're going to talk about Jacob and his family, and it, it, they're actually named, or, or yeah, pretty much we have, or at least they're numbered, so there's 70 of them go down into Egypt. Okay, is that the only ones who go to... Look, what happened to all these slaves? They went with him. Don't you think they they were integrated into the, into the society of Canaan? The families of those 318 trained soldiers, yeah, they, were part, For example, they were part of the group, they were part yeah, of the family. Yeah. Well, and the trained soldiers were there just to protect the crops. Where, who were the, where were the shepherds? Yeah, and, and, and all the other accoutrements, I mean, all the other people who were doing various other kinds of things. I mean, there must have been people who were cooking meals and all that kind of stuff. And all of them, and this, this is an important point because later we're going to hear that in four generations time, from the days of Jacob until the days of Moses, that's about 200 years roughly of time, four generations, 50 years per generation, in order to get from, a, if there were only 70 of them that went down to Egypt, and by the time we, they left Egypt, there were 600,000 men, not counting women and children. Someone did a little math and figured out every woman would have had to have 57 children. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm trying to prepare us to the point when we get to that part of the story, I'm sure that when they went down there, sure, these people are the ones who are named, the, the actual descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're specifically named, but they had with them huge numbers of people who were a part of their entourage. So I, I think that's important for us to realize as we, as we move through this story. Okay? Okay, you want to continue down there? When they arrived at Canaan, Abram traveled through the land until he came to the sacred tree of Morah, the holy place at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were still living in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, This is the country that I am going to give to your descendants. 
Then Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, he moved on south to the hill country east of the city of Bethel and set up his camp between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There also he built an altar and worshipped the Lord. Then he moved on from place to place, going towards the southern part of Canaan. Okay, so this is... He, he, that's my good news Bible again. So he's living a migratory life, isn't he? Living in tents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How difficult is it for one to leave his or her roots and never to return? You've all heard many times, I'm sure, the expression, it was much harder to get Egypt out of Israel than it was to get Israel out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So Israel out of Egypt. Yes. Much harder to get Egypt out of Israel than it is for us to get Israel out of Egypt. Yeah, I just have to stop and think about that one for a moment. And here's the talk, what we're talking about. God has to get Abraham out of Ur because, I mean, again, just like the story with Noah and other people, it seemed like there were very few people on earth that were listening to him. Fortunately, in Abraham's day, we still have Melchizedek. And maybe Job living about that same time. So there were a few. Anyway, um, let's talk about the Hebrew phrase "go." That's me. Mm, that's probably me. But I, I maybe about this time, uh, Abraham had he sacrificed and he butchered the animal into three pieces, and I just still don't understand why. He had this dream, and then the thing that happened, and why did they, did they have to go to Egypt? Why? What was the reason? The famine. 400 years or 450 yeah. years. I think well, the that, Lord that designed you know, yeah. I, I've never understood why. They, that why they went down to Egypt? No, the Lord said, you're going to be, I'll send you to Egypt. I think it was during mm-hmm. that dream or yeah. trance that he was in. Yeah, what, we're, what we're, we're going to deal with that in a little bit here, so okay, hang on. Go ahead and read. This Hebrew phrase, go, in Genesis 12, 1, means go in order to find yourself. The call to Abraham to get out of his country and move away from his roots should take him on a journey to find himself, to fulfill himself and establish his identity. And I thought he already was the boss of a big clan. I mean, he yeah. was the boss. yeah. Okay, it is no, not enough for Abraham to get out of Babel in order to find his real self. Abraham needs to get rid of the Babel that is still in him, the yeah, idolatry so. of his fathers and the arrogant mentality of Babel. So that's what we're talking about. It's, mm. In this case, we're talking about it's easier to get Abraham or Abram out of Babel than it is to get Babel out of Abram. Right. For that purpose, Abraham not only must leave the place where he had been until now, he also must always be on the move. It is significant that this moving destiny is reflected in the language that covers the stories of his life. The verb go, halak, is a key word that pervades the narratives about Abraham from chapter 12 to chapter 22, which continues the central section, constitutes the central section of the book of Genesis. 
It also is significant that the phrase lek, leha, mm-hmm. uh, go, frames the spiritual journey of Abraham. The expression appears twice. The first time when Abraham is called to leave his past, Genesis 12.1, and the second time when he is called to abandon his future, Genesis 22.2. That was what we talked about earlier. He's taken away from his home. He loses roots there. And now he's told to sacrifice his son. It's like he's losing his past and he's losing his future. Suspended in the void and disconnected from his roots, Abraham depends only on God. Hmm. This is from... uh, Abraham exemplifies faith from our Bible study guide. Wow. What might God be calling us to leave behind? We Adventists don't talk about this very often anymore, but there's lots of counsel saying the day is going to come and we have to pretty much leave everything behind and try to escape maybe no, to the mountains. Don't or, ask us to do that. What we have built up for you. Yes, right. <laughs> the last prior recorded time in which we know about God speaking to some human being was his promise to Noah as he gave the sign of the rainbow. So, what was the previous promise there? Genesis nine fifteen to 17. I will never destroy the world again with water. I will remember my promise to you and to all the animals that a flood will never again destroy all living beings. When the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between me and all living things, all living beings on earth. That is a sign of the promise which I'm making to all living beings. Good news, Bible. You know, it's good to watch, a, look at a rainbow from the plane. Yes. You can see almost the whole circle. Yeah, you can see almost right. a complete circle. Right, right. Abraham's original home was in Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldeans later came to rule the city of Babylon. And our lesson book talks about it as if they had always lived in Babylon. They had not always lived in Babylon. Uh, the, um, the call from God to leave Babylon has a long history among the biblical prophets, and we all know about this. There's, uh, all the way from Genesis 11, all the way through Revelation 18, clear out in the end of the New Testament when is, stay away from Babylon, right? Can I, uh, yeah. just a little veering off. Uh, there are two instances, two places where we find human sacrifice in Bible. This is one. Abraham was told, go and sacrifice. The other one, I wish it never happened, is a young girl who came out uh, yeah. rushing for this. Yeah, and she says, give me, was it three weeks? Something like that. Right, right. And she knew that she was going to be sacrificed. You know, and the Lord never asked for a human sacrifice. Yeah. Why wasn't there an intervention? I mean, I want to ask the Lord something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, just to just to touch on this point, um, let me go back here really quick. Remember, still future. Then I had another voice from heaven saying, Come out, my people, come out from her. You must not take part in her sins. You must not share in her punishment. So, still future, we have this, this one of these calls to come out of Babylon, right? Yes. God repeatedly told Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed through his descendants. Not long after Abraham arrived in Canaan and was starting to settle in the southern part of the land, a great famine came. 
What do you think about Abraham? What do you think Abraham thought when this famine descended upon him? At God's direction, he had moved <clears throat> from a place that was close to the Euphrates River. Think about living close to the Euphrates River. He was not used to famines, and he had large flocks and herds. And he knew, oh well, if you if you run out of water, it's no problem. The river's over there, just a little ways. But of course, the closest river to him in southern Canaan was the Nile River in Egypt. Although we do not have a record that he had received any indication from God that he would he should go there, what happened? He went. Jim? Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. There was a famine in Canaan, and it was so bad that Abram went farther south to Egypt to live there for a while. What happened to all those herds when he went down to Egypt? As a question. Did he take them with him? When he was about to cross the border into Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, You are a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will assume that you are my wife, and so they will kill me and let you live. Tell them that you are my sister. She was his half-sister. Then became, then because of you, they will let me live and treat me well. Now let me interrupt for just a little bit in case you've forgotten our talk about this in the past at some point. She was, she had a different mother, but the same father. So now we don't know if maybe Abraham's mother died, and then he remarried somebody else, and then he had her. She was about 10 years younger than he was. That's a possibility, but it's also very likely that he had more than one wife, Abraham's father. Okay? When he crossed the border into Egypt, the Egyptians did see that his wife was beautiful. Some of the court officials saw her and told the king how beautiful she was, so she was taken into the, his palace. Because of her, the king treated Abraham well and gave him flocks of sheep and goats, cattle, donkeys, slaves, and camels. I thought the Egyptians were supposed to be herders. Mm-hmm. Okay, go but ahead. Because the king had taken Sarah... The Lord sent terrible diseases on him and on the people of his palace. When the king sent Abram and asked him, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she was your sister? And let me take her as my wife. Here is your wife. Take her and get out. The king gave orders to his men so that Abram would put him... They took Abram. So they took Abraham and put him out of the country together with his wife and everything he owned from the good so Everything he owned suggests that he probably went down there with all his flocks and herds and everything. Well, it says that he got yeah, flocks king, and herds yeah. from the king. As well. As well. But So the moving vans came and, <laughs> and moved Abraham well, and Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> Caravan. Yeah. How do you feel about Abraham's half-lie, half-truth regarding a sister-wife? Is it alright to say something that is half true? When we give testimony in our legal system, we declare or swear that we will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Was Abraham doing that? Not quite. Is it alright to say that you're fine in the morning when you really are not? That's different. 
<laughs> That's a different. Okay. I'm not supposed to complain. I see. <laughs> t- t- telling the truth is complaining? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Okay. How did God turn this experience in Egypt to the eventual good of Abraham's descendants? Carrie? During his stay in Egypt, Abraham gave evidence that he was not free from human weakness and imperfection. In concealing the fact that Sarah was his wife, he betrayed a distrust of the divine care, a lack of that lofty faith and courage so often and nobly exemplified in his life. Abraham, Abraham rather, had been greatly favored by the king. Even now, Pharaoh would permit him no harm to be done or his company, but ordered a guard to conduct him in safety out of his dominions. At this time, laws were made prohibiting the Egyptians from intercourse and in brackets interaction with foreign shepherds and any such familiarity as eating or drinking with them. Why is that important? Because when... Jacob and his clan came down into Egypt at the time of the famine. They were mm-hmm. not going. They were not to mingle with the rest of the uh, yeah. Egyptians. They were separate. Okay, we'll read on and see what happened. Pharaoh's dismissal of Abraham was kind and generous, but he bade him leave Egypt, for he dared not permit him to remain. He had ignorantly been about to do him a serious injury, but God had interposed. And, 131 in brackets, saved the monarch, monarch father, I'll get it right yet, monarch from committing so great a sin. Pharaoh saw in this stranger a man whom the God of heaven honored, and he feared to have in his kingdom one who so evidently was under divine favor. Yeah, can you imagine... You have this guy here, and all of a sudden, everybody's having problems. Yeah. How'd they figure it out? How'd they figure out that it was because of Sarah? Because I don't know. Of Abraham. Why? And it, later on, there's a there's a time when he's the the king of Gerar tries to take her, and none of his wives can get pregnant. In fact, none of the women could get pregnant. How long did it take to figure that out? Should Abraham remain in Egypt, his increasing wealth and honor would be likely to excite the envy or covetousness of the Egyptians, and some injury might be done him for which the monarch would be held responsible and which might again bring judgments upon the royal house. And that's from Ellen G. White, Patriots and Prophets, 130 and paragraph 1-2. Okay. If these Egyptians' laws made at that time, that it was these Egyptians' laws that made at that time that later protected the descendants of Jacob from dwelling among the Egyptians and adopting their habits and religion, and I might suggest just melting into the into the Egyptian society. The Israelites were given a special place in Goshen, and this, of course, was at the insistence of Jacob. I mean, of Joseph. What? This was the most fertile land. Yeah. The, the Delta area. Where they were able to go in numbers separate from the Egyptians and multiply to become a nation. So that little trip down to Egypt had some very significant implications, didn't it? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. From the Bible study guide for Monday. Ironically, Abram, who has just arrived in the promised land, decides to leave it for Egypt because, quote, there was a famine in the land. So we're going back in history a little bit. Evidence of people from Canaan going into Egypt in times of famine is well attested in ancient texts. In the Egyptian teaching of Merikari, I don't know that name. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, a text composed during the period of the Middle Kingdom. That was Abraham's time. Uh, 2060 to 1700 BC. People coming from Canaan are identified as miserable Asiatic. And there's the uh, Hebrew name. And described as wretched, short of water. He does not dwell on one place. Food propels his legs. That's from... <laughs> Miriam Lichtheim in ancient Egyptian literature. So, you see, here's the Egyptians. They're like Abraham when he left Ur. They're living next to the Nile River. They don't have to worry about water. They can fish. They can get everything out of the water. They can, they have, they had foot pumps to pump the water out of the, the Nile River and onto their property so they could grow things anytime they wanted. But, so what are they thinking about these Asiatics, these miserable Asiatics, they run out of water. What do they got to do? They got to run somewhere to find water. Those poor people, right? Many times throughout the Old Testament, Israel was tempted to either return to Egypt or to depend upon Egypt for military assistance or protection. But in each case, this would signify dependence upon human beings instead of God. And just as here's one of many examples Numbers 14.3. Dwayne? Why is the Lord taking us into that land? We will be killed in battle and our wives and children will be captured. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? Oh, brother. This is, here they are out there. You know, they've gotten out of Egypt. They've been through all that stuff. And now God's ready to take them into the land. They tried to go up there without, without following God's directions. It didn't work. So now they want to go back to Egypt. Was this about the time? Uh, it just appears that Egypt was the first prominent world power. Yeah. So the pharaohs were in business at this time. Mm-hmm. After that comes Assyria, and then comes Babylonians, and da da da. Yeah. Hmm. It's important to notice in the Abraham story that in spite of his fairly significant mistakes, sometimes running ahead of God, think of Hagar and and uh, uh, what's his name? Upside, I got a blank. Anyway, Hagar's son, Hagar, God, Ishmael. Ishmael, yeah. God still worked with him step by step. That is what it means to be led by God's grace. Without it, there would be no hope. When Abraham returned to Canaan with his nephew Lot, it soon was apparent that they both had many flocks and herds, and there was constant fighting between their herdsmen. So we didn't hear anything about. Lot down in Egypt, but apparently he was there too. Mm. Okay? Genesis thirteen eight through 13. Then Abram said to Lot, We are relatives, and your men and my men shouldn't be quarreling. So let's separate. Choose any part of the land you want. You go one way, and I'll go the other. Lot looked around and saw that the whole Jordan Valley all the way to Zor, the plenty of water, like the garden of the Lord, 
or like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord had destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lord chose the whole Jordan Valley for himself and moved away toward the east. That is how the two men parted. Aram stayed in the land of Canaan and Lord settled among the cities in the valley and camped near Sodom, whose people were wicked and sinned against the Lord. Goodness Bible. And I'm, we're going to jump to this story later, but uh, Ellen White hints that he ended up actually marrying a woman from Sodom. Lot did. Yes, Gordon. So here's the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. Is it not sustain? Does it not run all the time to it sustain? Did. It did. To sustain Abraham or other people yeah, in But Abraham in actually Palestine. had lit, had gone so far south that he was beyond the Dead Sea. Okay. So there was no... It says he moved away toward the east. How do we get that? Jordan Valley for himself and moved away toward the east. Um, that would be Arabia, maybe? So Lot chose the Jordan Valley... And for himself, and moved away toward the east. Yes. No, so, so Abraham they, moved to the east. Abraham moved to the east. So, okay. no, no, Lot moved to the no, east. Lot, yeah. Lot moved the east. So they were up in, they were up around Jerusalem or somewhere up on the on the on the plateau up there. And so, when Lot chose the valley, he moved to the east, which means down into the Jordan Valley. And perhaps on the east side of the. Uh, probably, probably yeah. both sides of the river. Okay. Yeah, that was near around Dead Sea, wasn't it? A little ways north of there. Yeah. Well, although we can't say that for sure, the there's pretty good evidence that Sodom and Gomorrah were at the southern end of the Dead Sea as we know it now. Right. So, well, Lot moved to what appeared to be a very lush place in the Jordan Valley, where he could easily have water and feed his flocks. He had left Abraham. Abraham was depending upon God. Genesis 13, 14 to 18. Now let's carry on with the story. After Lot had left, the Lord said to Abram, From where you are, look carefully in all directions. Are you, are you, if, you, if you stand on the hillside in Bethlehem, you can see Moab. All the way across the other side of... I have a, a placemat at home, actually, that I bought in Bethlehem. And you can see... all the way, You can see... So you can think of in the days of... of um, Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. So, in her family, Naomi's family, living in Bethlehem, they could see it looks greener over there, you know, it looks always greener on, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. In this case, grass was greener on the other side of the Jordan Valley. So it's, this is not, this is not so far away. From where you are, look carefully in all directions. I'm going to give you and your descendants all the land that you see and it will be yours forever. I'm going to give you, and so what happens if today you're negotiating with uh, the people in Gaza? Okay, how much of this land do you think you should have? <laughs> it will be yours forever. <laughs> I'm going to give you so many descendants that no one will be able to count them all. It would be as easy to count all the specks of dust on earth. Now go and look over the whole land because I'm going to give it all to you. So Abram moved his camp and settled near the sacred trees of Mamre at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Good news Bible. Hebron is still there, right? Hebron is still there. It's a very 
tricky city to visit. The the line between Gaza, the well, the the Arab territory and the Israelite territory runs right through the middle of the temple. So the Jews have one side of that temple, and the Arabs have the other side. Mm. It's 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 not it's not the temple of uh, of, of Bethlehem. This is further south, but this is the temple where the, it's very sacred to both those groups because it's where it's where the the where Sarah was originally buried, and Abraham was buried, and later. Uh, Joseph. Well, Jason, I think this Jacob and, Jacob. and Leah and maybe even Joseph are all supposed to be buried there. So, yeah. And back in the, many years ago, the first time I went to Israel, we went down there and we visited that place. It's not easy to do that now. Hmm. So, um, it's important to notice that Lot thought he was choosing the best part when he moved down into the Jordan Valley. He ended up being a prisoner and needed to be rescued by Uncle Ab- by his Uncle Abraham. <laughs> Lot's choice of the best part of the land for himself reminds us of the antediluvians when the descendants of Seth, who were called the sons of God, chose the ones they liked from among the daughters of Cain, the daughters of, Ham, of the daughters of man. Abraham had managed to reco- reconnect with God. Notice specifically what God said to Abraham. Tim? In fact, this is the first recorded time in the Bible that God speaks of to Abram about his call at Ur. Since his call. Since his call at Ur. Lift your eyes now and look from the palace, from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all of the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Genesis thirteen fourteen and 15. Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15 from the... A New King James Version. God then invited Ab- invites Abraham to walk on the land as an act of appropriation, taking for himself, typically without the owner's permission. Okay, and I'm going to interrupt there for a second. That's not obvious to us in English, but in Hebrew, if you walk on some land in a, in a certain context, basically you're claiming that land is yours. Okay. Go ahead. Arise, walk in the land through through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Genesis 13, verse 17, from the Bible Study Guide for Tuesday, May 3. Yet, Say that one more time, what you just said. Everywhere he could look. Yeah, God said to Abraham, look east, right. west, north, and south. Everything you see, this land is yours. It's going to be yours anyway. So one could see what about twenty miles one way and oh at least even if if you're up on a on the hill if you're up on a hill you can see up to sixty miles or more or more so now sixty miles one going, way you can see to the ocean oh yeah and sixty miles the other way so or yeah. more yeah right right okay yeah unlike Abram's move. The going of Lot was no spiritual connotation. Instead, it is associated with his wealth, Genesis thirteen five. Moreover, not only is the way they go different, but also the way they dwell. While Abraham relates his dwelling to the relationship with God, 
Lot views his dwelling only in connection to himself and his material possessions. The difficulty of this of their cohabitation, Genesis 13, verse 6, is not merely the result of outside factors. It essentially has to do with the profound spiritual divergences between them. Their worldviews are irreconcilable worldviews, Genesis 13, verses 7 to 9. And therefore, tensions between them are unavoidable. Although the biblical texts report a strife between the herdsmen, the dispute goes beyond the herdsmen and the, and involves spiritual matters. Abram understands then that the separation is the only way for peace. Lot takes the initiative, initiative and selects the territory of the rich plains. Abraham, excuse me, Abram takes his, what is left, the mountains of Canaan, Genesis 13, verse 12, unlike Lot, who decides by himself to lift his eyes and see, Genesis. He looked, he looked up the valley and said, that valley looks pretty good, I'll go there, go ahead. Lift his eyes and see, Genesis 13, verse 10. Abraham does this only at God's injunction. So what did God tell Abram? Look east, west, north, and south, right? So Lot did his own looking, but Abram followed God's directions. Why was Abram's future-oriented perspective superior to Lot's present-oriented thinking? What kind of thinking do we have today? The only way to really understand Scripture is to have what we call the larger view, the great controversy, understanding of all of this. God made it very clear that at this point he was giving that land to Abraham. But Abraham's life was not to remain peaceful and quiet. War broke out around him. Carrie? Coming from Genesis 14, text 1 through 17. Four kings, Amraphel of Babylonia, Arioch of Elisar, Chedorlaomer of Elam, and Tidal of Golim, went to war against five other kings, Bera of Sodom, Bersham of Gomorrah, Shinab of Admar, Shamibar of Zimalim, and the king of Bela, or in brackets, or Zor. Good for you, Carrie. <laughs> All those great names. These five kings had formed an alliance and joined forces in the valley of Siddam, which is now the Dead Sea. They had been under the control of Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled against him. So let's understand this. Here's a king who comes from way over by Babylon, but he has dominated this territory so much that the, the, the kings living in these various cities in the, in the Jordan Valley are paying tribute to him. And finally they decided, okay, we've, we've got enough strength here. We all organize ourselves together. We don't have to pay our, our taxes to him anymore. In the 14th year, Shadoria Laoma and his allies came with their armies and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim the Zuzim in Ham, the Emin in the plain of Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountains of Edom, pursuing them as far as El Paran on the edge of the desert. Then they turned around and came back to Kadesh, and in brackets, then known as Embishvat, and Mishpat, I think it is. Yeah, let me interrupt there for a second. This is an important little, just a tidbit, but it's important. 
a number of these cities in Canaan whose names have changed. Not just the people's names changed, a lot of cities' names have changed. So to try to trace them back is not always easy. Go ahead. Uh, there they turned around and came back to Kadesh in brackets, then known as En Mishpat. They conquered all the land of the Amalekites and defeated the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zebulim, and Bela drew up their armies for battle in the valley of Sidon and fought against the kings of Elam, Goim, Babylonia, and Elisar, five kings against four. The valley was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to run away from the battle, uh, battle they fell into the pits. But the other three kings escaped to the mountains. The four kings took everything in Sodom and Gomorrah, including the food, and went away. Lot, Abraham's nephew, nephew was living in Sodom, so they took all in his possessions. But a man escaped and reported all this to Abram, the Hebrew who was living near the sacred trees belonging to Mamre the Amorite. Mamre and his brothers Eshcol and Anur were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew had been captured, he called together all the fighting men on his camp, 318 in all, and pursued the four kings all the way to Dan. There he divided his men into groups, attacked enemy by night, and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. That's quite a ways. <laughs> and recovered the loot that had been taken. He also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other prisoners. So we're looking at here, before you finish that up, we're looking at here now, Abraham basically is acting like the most powerful person in the whole Middle East. What is he about, uh, 85, 90 years old? At least. 85 or 90. Because he left at, at what, 75 from... Uh, yeah, yeah. But of course yeah. he lived to be 180. Still. <laughs> he had a it doesn't even have any children yet. He's a young yeah. man at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> when Abram came back from his victory over Chedor the Omer and the other kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shever, also called King's Valley, and that's from the Good News Bible. The situation was that four armies from Mesopotamia and Persia attacked five Canaanite armies who had rebelled against them. Among many others, Lot was taken captive. It is interesting to note that while Abraham had been promised by God that this land would belong to him, he saw war taking place on his property. (laughs) Clearly at the beginning, Abraham was not involved because he was up on the highlands, not in the Jordan Valley. He had not depended upon military might to take control of the land, which God had given him. Gordon? From Ellen White, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 135. Abraham, dwelling in peace in the Oaks of Mamre, learned from one of the fugitives the story of the battle and calamity that had befallen his nephew. He had cherished so, he had cherished no unkind memory of Lot's ingratitude. All his affection for him was awakened, and he determined that he should be rescued. Seeking, first of all, divine counsel, Abraham prepared for war. Okay, what does Abraham always do? How do you seek divine counsel to go to war? You ask God. Gordon, you shouldn't have a problem with that. 
The children of Israel all through their history, when they went to war following God's guidance, they won without any problems. Every time they went to war without God's guidance, what happened? A terrible disaster. So... uh, Starts with Abraham. Bring analogies to today's time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you have a good point. Abraham turned to God every time. (laughs) Yeah, really important. We do not know, of course, how large these armies were, but it seems that they were significant in size. After being warned by a man who escaped from the Babylonians, Abraham, with the assistance of two or three of his close associates, followed the Babylonians. Why do you think these Canaanite kings were willing to follow the leadership of Abraham? I mean, what kind of military leader are you? Mm-hmm. Abraham organized an attack at night from different sides and quickly won the battle because God was fighting on his side. A little like Gideon? In- mm, yeah. yeah. What kind of additional influence on the local people did this victory given to a- give to Abraham? How are people around us, us impacted or influenced by our behavior? I hope we don't have to go out and win a war in order to... Have an influence on the people around us. Well, last quarter we spent much time talking about Melchizedek since he is discussed in the book of Hebrews. Notice these words. Dwayne? And Melchizedek, who was king of Salem and also a priest of the Most High God, brought bread and wine to Abram, blessed him, and said, May the Most High God who made heaven and earth bless Abram. May the Most High God who gave you victory over your enemies be praised. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the loot he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Keep the loot, but give me back all my people. Abram answered, I solemnly swear before the Lord, the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth, that I will not keep anything of yours, not even a thread or a sandal strap. Then you can never say, I am the one who made Abram rich. (laughs) <laughs> I will take nothing for myself. I will accept only what my men have used. But let my allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, take their share. Can you imagine uh, Abraham taking home all the all the dwellers of Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> I just, I, Abraham commanded his household after him. Each of them had to carry some of the loot back on their backs. <laughs> we already know that Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, was also called the king of Salem or the king of peace. And of course, Salem was the name of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. That is quite a name for a small local king living in the land of Canaan, not far from Sodom and Gomorrah. So what do we know about Melchizedek? We know nothing about his ancestry or his descendants. Charles? Charles? The mysterious king seems completely out of place in the context of the narrative. First of all, Melchizedek comes from the city of Salem, the ancient name of Jerusalem, which was not involved in the war. Additionally, the name Shalem, Salem, which means peace, contradicts the activities of war, which have been central to the story so far. Justice, Sedek, mm-hmm. which is uh, in included in the name of the king stands in opposition to the evocations of evil and wickedness in the names of Bera in evil, king of Sodom and Bisha, wickedness, king of Gomorrah. Melchizedek is called a priest of God, most high. Look at this. So 
Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, but these two guys who were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, one was named as evil, and the other was named wickedness. Wow. Okay, go ahead. This is the first occurrence in the Bible of the word priest. Cohen, Melchizedek's priesthood uh, predates the Levitical priesthood. Let me interrupt for just a second. Do you know anybody by the name of Cohen? There are a lot of Jewish famous names. Jewish name. Yes, yes, yes. famous Jewish names. Go ahead. Well, spelled slightly differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. minor detail. Yeah. Roots, yeah, Cohen. The fact that Abraham used the same title El Elyon, God Most High, for his God as does Melchizedek, uh, Genesis fourteen twenty, in which he joins the name Yahweh to the name God Most High, Genesis 14.22, suggests that Abraham considered Melchizedek as a legitimate priest of the Creator God. Although Melchizedek belonged to the Canaanite community, God had chosen him to be his representative among the people of the time. In spite of his foreign origin, Abraham gives him a tithe and is blessed by him. Uh, Melchizedek, we just find him here and again in Hebrew chapter 11, nowhere else, do you? Yeah, we also found in Psalms 110, it's going to talk about that oh, in just okay, a moment. Okay. Alright, in spite of his foreign origin, Abram gives him the tithe and uh, blessed him. In addition, the numerous references to God, the sacred meal of bread and wine, and the blessing and the hymn addressed to God, imbue the Canaanite figure uh, of Melchizedek with the spiritual significance, pointing beyond a simple meaning of king. Notably, the subsequent scriptures maintain this spiritual connection. Psalms 110 associates Melchizedek with the future Davidic Messiah, Psalms 110 verse 4 followed by the authors of New Testament who relate the unique priesthood of Melchizedek to the to Jesus, Hebrews 5, 5, uh, 6 to 10, okay, and Hebrews chapter 7. This is from adult children's, I mean, adult teachers' Bible school study guide. Yeah, you want to go ahead and read Psalm 110 there for us? Psalm 110, 10. The Lord made a solemn promise and will not take it back. You will be a priest forever. In the priestly order of Melchizedek. Yeah. And of course, as we studied last quarter, the point here is that we know nothing about his ancestors. We know nothing about his descendants. But God picked him out on purpose. Here was a man who blessed Abraham, the, the ancestor of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, through this man. So he, he's a wonderful and, uh, you know, sort of antitypical type for, I mean, typical type for Jesus who came along later. But Abraham apparently recognized Melchizedek as a man of God and a priest. And after returning home with considerable loot from the war, he paid tithe to Melchizedek. This tithe paying preceded the tithe paying mandated by God for the Levites and the children of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. But we have one other example of tithe paying, Coming up pretty soon, who is that? Um, 
Hmm, we're <laughs> running into trouble here. Yeah. Jacob paid tithe. Remember, he promised after with sleeping on the ground with the stone pillow. Bethel. At Bethel. Right. So, why is the giving of tithe a great indicator of faith? Christ's church is to be a blessing, and his members are to be blessed as they bless others. The object of God in choosing a people before all the world was not only that he might adopt them as his sons and daughters, but that through them he might confer on the world the benefits of dying illumination. When the Lord chose Abraham, it was not simply to be the special friend of God, but to be a medium of the precious and peculiar privileges the Lord desired to bestow upon the nations. He was to be a light amid the moral darkness of the surroundings. Whenever God blesses his children with light and truth, it is not only that they may have the gift of eternal life, but that those around them may also be spiritually enlightened. You are are the salt of the earth, and when God makes his children salt, it is not only for their own preservation, but that they may be agents in preserving others. Do you shine as living stones in God's building? We have not the genuine religion unless it exerts a controlling influence upon us in every business transaction. We should have practical godliness to weave into our life work. We should have the transforming grace of Christ upon our hearts. We need a great deal less of self and more of Jesus. Ellen White signs the time February 3, 1890. Well, we're running out of time. Melchizedek offered, uh, to, led the children to, to bless Abraham, and he therefore became a great example for the children of Israel later. Let's pray. Our kind and wonderful Father, we look at these ancient stories and we realize that there are lessons here for us to learn, things that we should incorporate into our lives and our day. May we have experiences like the ones that Abraham and Melchizedek and others had in their day, maybe not on exactly the same kind of scale, but in ways in which we are make, make it possible for us to witness to those around us. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.